Welcome to the 112th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Paul Whitcover, a fantasy and science fiction author and the author of the new novel, Emperor of All Things. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Paul Whitcover. Paul's latest novel is The Emperor of All Things. Paul's earlier novels include Waking Beauty, Tumbling After, and Asylum. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Sure. Well, I wondered as we get started if you could just read the the first page or two of your new novel, Emperor of All Things. I'd be glad to. Um, I'm going to read, I guess, uh, the just the first page and a half or so, uh, which is the prologue, sort of sets the scene a little bit. Clocks. Clocks everywhere, on the wooden shelves and tables, even upon the sawdust-covered floor of the attic room. Clocks of all shapes and sizes limbed in the light of a gibbous moon that did not so much pierce the skylight as sift through its sooty glass. Tall clocks in finely carved and polished casings of exotic woods with brass pendulums winking back and forth, ornate mantel clocks of ormolu and mahogany, marble and tortoise shell, clocks of gold and silver set into or alongside precious metal and porcelain renderings of human figures in various states of dress and undress, as well as representations of beasts real and fabulous, lions consorting with unicorns, eagles and griffins roosting side by side, cuckoo clocks and carriage clocks, and tambour clocks and skeleton clocks. Even pocket watches with their chains and ribbons neatly coiled or dangling free and loose as slipped lanyards. The ticking of so many timepieces, no two synchronized, filled the space with a facsimile of whispered conversation, as if some ghostly parliament were meeting in the dead of night. Scattered among the clocks were glass flasks and vials of assorted shapes and sizes, some containing clear or opaque liquids, others quite empty, along with mortars and pestles, iron tongs, funnels, crucibles, and other such instruments bespeaking the practice of alchemy. Set in a row along one wall were three brick furnaces, one in the shape of a tower and as tall as a man, the other two smaller and squat in shape like ornamental toads. A mouse was making its way across the surface of one table, nosing amid a clutter of clock parts and tools, pins, clicks, rivets, coiled springs, tweezers, clamps, winders, files, and like essentials of the horologist's trade. Every so often it rose off its tiny front paws to sniff the air, whiskers twitching, eyes aglitter like apple seeds in a bed of ash. From a shelf overhead, a black cat followed its progress with glowing formaline eyes. The noise in the back of its throat, somewhere between a growl and a purr, was cloaked by the gossipy muttering of the clocks. The tip of its tail lashed from side to side like a metronome. When the meanderings of the mouse brought it conveniently near, the cat moved with the grace of a gliding shadow, seeming as insubstantial, until it, sh- until it struck. In leaping to the tabletop, it did not disturb a single item, yet knocked the rodent onto its side, pressing the half-stunned creature down with one paw and slashing with its teeth at the gray fur. The cat tensed and flattened at a sound from overhead, a faint click followed by a drawn-out creaking, as if the old house were settling on its foundations. Hissing, the cat darted a a glance upwards 
as a thin rope dropped through the now open skylight to dangle above the floor a few feet away. The rope had not reached the end of its length before the cat bolted, with less stealth or silence than just moments before. Small gears and other items scattered under its paws as it fled into the shadows. An empty vial slipped to the floor and shattered. The mouse was long gone. Drops of its blood glistened on the table, dark as oil. A svelte figure slid down the rope and dropped soundlessly to the floor. The intruder was dressed in gray. Soft gray boots, gray breeches, a gray shirt beneath a gray cloak. Strapped to its back was a small crossbow, and a blade as slender as a rapier, yet no longer than a short sword, hung in a gray scabbard from its belt, as did six leather pouches, also gray. A gray kerchief pulled across the nose hid the bottom half of the face. A gray hood cloaked the upper. In between, eyes as dark as the mouse's glittered as they probed the shadowy corners of the room. The intruder strode to one of the tables. The timepieces on this particular table were clearly the work of master craftsmen. Many were made with precious metals. Not a few were inset with jewels. A single one of these clocks, selected at random, would have made a rich prize for a thief. Yet the gray-clad figure reached without hesitation for a mantle clock that appeared as out of place as an ordinary goblet set alongside the Holy Grail. At a whisper of displaced air, the intruder turned, clock in one hand, the rapier-like blade in the other. And I'll stop there. Okay, great. Well, if the listeners haven't read your new novel yet, uh, how would you describe The Emperor of All Things? Well, I can I can uh, fortunately read you from the cover copy. <laughs> um, okay, <laughs> this saves me uh, the difficulty of having to come up to an, with, with an answer for that that uh, difficult question, which is the the bane of all writers. Um, the the cover copy says seventeen fifty eight, the age of enlightenment. Yet the advance of reason has not brought peace. England is embroiled in a war that stretches from her North American colonies to Europe and beyond. Across the Channel, the French prepare to invade. Daniel Quare is a journeyman of the Worshipful Company of Clockmakers. He is also a regulator, member of a secret order within the guild tasked with seeking out horological innovations that could give England the upper hand over her enemies. Now Quare's superiors have heard tell of a singular device, a pocket watch rumored to possess properties that have more to do with magic than with any known science. But Quare soon learns that he is not alone in searching for this strange and sinister timepiece. He is pursued by a French spy who will stop at nothing to fetch the book, the prize back to his masters. And a mysterious thief known only as Grimalkin seeks the watch as well for purposes equally enigmatic. Daniel's path is full of adventure, intrigue, betrayal, and murder, and it will lead him from the world he knows to an otherware of demigods and dragons in which nothing is as it seems, time least of all. Great. Well, uh, do you, do you remember what gave you kind of the original idea or inspiration for the novel? I I vaguely do, um, and and I say vaguely because this is a this is a book um, whose origins go back over twenty years um, to a story that I wrote in uh, the early nineteen eighties, shortly after I I. I came back from or graduated from uh, the Clarion Writers Workshop. So this, it must have been like 82 or 83. Anyway, I, I had this idea or image really that I built kind of a, a really bad short story around of, of, a, of a, a tower clock. 
in a in a kind of a um, European town in the any time from the Middle Ages through maybe the the Reformation, um, and the the kind of strange um, figures uh, that that came out of the the tower clock, the automatons. And I, I did some research on clocks and um, went to a few clock museums and, and wrote a story which was really <clears throat> kind of beyond my abilities at the time. But I always remembered the images that had uh, fired up that story in the first place. And finally, um, a few years ago, I, I was after my after my last book, in fact, I was kind of thinking of what I was going to write next. And I felt like it was finally time for me to come back to that that idea. Interesting. So so what was the what was the you said you had done some research about uh watches and clocks. Um had you always been interested in, in them or did you just decide to research it for the for the story and then the novel? Yeah, it it just kind of grew out of the out of uh the, the image I had of of this clock tower and its automatons that I mentioned to you. Um, and understanding how to how to write about them in an authentic way just sort of led me into doing a lot of research, um, and I'm still still doing that, uh, doing a lot of research today, even as I work on the on the next book. This is a two book series, so I'm I'm finishing it up right now. Great. Um, and as you explained to me before we started recording, uh, currently the the novel is available in the UK. Um, but you haven't had a U.S. sale yet. I, I'm assuming that you, you know, that your agent has submitted it in the U.S. Uh, we've submitted it um, in certain places, but we haven't uh, submitted it widely. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this point, because the British edition is coming out so soon uh, on Valentine's Day, in fact, uh, we're we're basically holding off, and we're just going to see how it does in in England. I think. Gotcha. Um, and if someone's listening to this in the U.S., I'm assuming that they could, you know, uh, I'm assuming they could order the the ebook via Amazon, even though they're in the U.S. Yes, and I mean they can order the the hardcover the as well through Amazon UK if they want. But but as you point out, the um, ebook is also available. Gotcha, gotcha. So so you mentioned earlier um, Clarion. Uh, Kind of two questions uh, uh, around that. First, first, I was just curious: what, what was like your original, original, um, uh, your original desire or passion to write? Was that something that was always there, or or was there a, a specific specific time that you that you started writing short stories or, or novels when you were a kid? What what age were you? Well, I guess the first my I I kind of. Uh, you know, both of my parents were involved in in literature, I guess you would say, or, or writing. My dad's a journalist. My mom was uh, was an English teacher, and so I grew up, you know, in an, in a household where reading was was encouraged and writers were looked on with respect. And um, you know, my dad, um, as a journalist, worked uh, from home a lot, and I I grew up with the noise of a typewriter kind of in the background um and also with the with uh, a, a, an awareness of uh of the discipline that are that a writer needs to have and uh when i started becoming 
I guess, interested in writing as opposed to just reading, which was probably when I was in around fifth grade or so, I was really interested in being a, in a, po- being a poet. And it probably wasn't until I got to college that uh, I realized uh, my interests or talents lay more in the realm of, uh, of fiction. Um, and, you know, because what I was really interested in, what I really loved to read was science fiction and fantasy. Uh, that was around the same time as uh, writers like Samuel Delaney and Michael Moorcock and Brian Aldiss were, you know, and J.G. Ballard were really making a big splash. I mean, I came, I was a little late to all of that, obviously, but but I mean, to me, they discovering those writers really opened my eyes to the to the possibilities that were inherent in in the literature of the, of the fantastic and and i i guess i never really looked back i they i felt like they gave me permission to to do what i love to do gotcha and what age were you when you did the the clarion workshop uh i was uh, 21 just just out of college and what was that experience like i've heard that it it can be intense for for some people <laughs> yeah it was very intense i mean um I really had no notion of what to expect. Um, I was uh, there with some super talented people who have who have gone on to, to um, successful careers. Uh, Lucia Shepard was was one of my classmates there, and um, Mikey Rosner Herman. Um, and uh, I don't know. For me, it was a nece- it was a really necessary, beneficial kind of kick in the pants, you know, because I I had a very uh, inflated view of my, of my talent and my abilities and where I was in my development as a writer. And I mean, it did not take long in that environment to to realize that, that, uh, I had a lot to learn and, and I had good people to learn it from there. And who are some of your instructors? Uh, well, Damon Knight and Kate Wilhelm were still teaching then. Uh, Algis Budrius was, uh, was one of my teachers. Uh, and he was uh, fantastic, actually. He he probably helped me more than anyone else uh, to recognize my own authentic voice as a writer. Um, and it was something I actually would never have recognized if he if he hadn't pointed it out to me. Um, and uh, uh, Kit Reed was one of my teachers, also also really good. I'm I'm friends with her uh, to this day. Um, so yeah, I'm, was curious, just a, I'm curious what you just said about, uh, uh, AJ Butchers and, and pointing out your, your kind of natural voice. Do you remember what, what he said to you or, 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 or yeah, what yeah, sure I do. Sure. I do. I mean, you know, at Clarion, one of the things that's stressed is, is producing a lot of stories. And, uh, I, I mentioned, uh, just a moment ago that, you know, I, I, my understanding of the possibilities of, uh, fantastic literature were, you know, very much, um, awakened by reading, you know, writers like Delaney and Moorcock and so on. And, and Delaney especially was, was a really big, uh, influence for me. And, um, one of the, one of the great things that Budris did in that class was pointed out to me, uh, my, um, 
uh, thraldom to the style of, uh, of Delaney. He, at, at one point, critiquing one of my stories, he called me Samuel R. Whitcover. Um, so I got the message, you know, but I didn't know from that what I knew what not to do, but I didn't know what what to do. And and then later, one of the my fellow students, Mario Milosevic, and I collaborated on a story. And there was a line in that story. Uh, I don't remember the exact line right now, but but it was a, what I considered to be a very um, stripped down and, and sort of plain spoken line. And uh, and Budras pointed to that as, you know, that that is that is you speaking or you writing in, in your unique, appropriate voice. And because he was right, it, it resonated with me. You know, I didn't look at it and say, you're crazy. I looked at it and said, oh, of course, now I now I recognize that that, you know, the feeling I had while I was writing that sentence was the feeling of encountering my own voice. Interesting. And so you, you went and did more of that? I tried to, I mean, you know, it was a, it's, it was a, a struggle and an enduring struggle, you know, continuing one to, to first of all, recognize that voice and then be, be faithful to it and not let it be corrupted by, you know, whatever, whatever is out there, uh, the success of selling a story that could be a bad thing. Um, you know, the, the reading what, uh, what the reviewers have to say, uh, reading other writers that I admire, you know, there's a lot of things that are both, uh, that both feed and, and make, make a writer stronger. And then there's a lot of things that, that can, you know, sort of corrupt, uh, or what a writer has that's, that's uniquely his or her own. Sure. So, so what was the what was the path to publication like for you for your first novel, Waking Beauty, from from you know your experience at Clarion and and um and and then you know working on that novel and eventually getting it published? Were there other novels before Waking Beauty? Not really. I, I did I published it or I didn't publish, but I wrote a novel in in college for my um for for the honors program there, and but it was a you know it was a pretty crappy novel and. Um, after I got back from, uh, from Clarion, I sold a couple of stories, but I felt like I was not, uh, really growing as a writer. I wasn't having a lot of successes. I, as time went by, I got, I got more and more blocked. And, uh, finally I, I decided I would go back to school and got a, a master's degree in English and writing. And it was during that period that I started work on, on what became, uh, Waking Beauty. And, um, it, it was a book that, that just sort of came out of nowhere and, and really sort of took me over. And, uh, I, I wasn't really aware of everything I was doing in that book. I, I was not in command or control of my, uh, of my tools and, and nonetheless, something, uh, that I'm still very proud of managed to get done. And, I already had an agent, uh, luckily due to a, due to a friend of mine who uh, introduced me to Ralph Bicanonza, uh, who was a, a wonderful uh, person and a and a great agent, very supportive uh, of my uh, my work, even though I was the the smallest fish in his pond. And he ultimately passed me on to my um, my current agent, uh, and who I'm very very happy with. And Anyway, my my first 
my current agent actually turned out to be the the editor of my, of my first book. Um, so uh, it's it's all in the family. <laughs> well, um, I know you're a big reader of science fiction and fantasy, and you've been a book reviewer for Locus Magazine. Given given the amount of reading that you do, are there any particular trends that you're noticing in science fiction and fantasy now, or in the last you know five to ten years? Well, uh, just speaking in the in really broad terms, I think that the the most interesting thing that I've I've seen is the willingness on the part of um, the best writers in our genre both science fiction and fantasy to just not think of themselves in exclusively genre terms anymore. And, and basically, um, you know, they, they look for their subjects, they look for, uh, their influences, um, wherever, and they incorporate all kinds of, uh, of stuff into their work. Um, part, some of that turns out to have, uh, you know, a wider appeal than the, purely uh, genre audience and and some doesn't but um, it's uh, I, I think I think it's interesting and it demonstrates the degree to which uh, you know genre is a, is really a, a kind of a publishing creation um, I don't think that's entirely true but but it it there's there's some truth to that sure sure and and what books or authors have you read in the past couple of years that really stood out for you that that made an impact and that you would recommend? Wow. <laughs> well, uh, I'm uh, you know I've, I've actually stopped reviewing. I stopped reviewing about uh, a year ago, and then uh, last year I was I was uh, a judge for the Philip K. Dick Awards, and I just finished uh, a lot of intensive reading for that. So my response to all of that has been to immediately forget everything that I've read. Okay. Um, but I can, I can, you know, I can mention a couple of authors. I mean, I think, um, you know, Catherine Valente is, is just a fabulous, fabulous writer in every sense of, of that word. And, um, you know, I admire her work so much and, um, she, she is a genuine original, uh, super talented. Um, I think, um, I've been reading, uh, a writer named Felix Gilman, who has about, I guess he's, his fourth book has just been published. And he's, he's also quite extraordinary, um, a fantasy writer with, uh, sort of slipstreamy elements. Um, you're, you're, his, the, his, you're, the, you're uh, the second interviewee in a row that's mentioned Felix Gilman. Uh-huh. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he's really good. He lives here in New York. I think he might even live in Brick in Brooklyn. Um, but a very original uh, writer, a literary writer, but, uh, you know, I don't uh, hold that against him and nobody else should either. Um, let's see, who else? Uh, Robert Reddick, who's a, a fantasy, more, more of a traditional fantasy, epic fantasy writer. But uh, he just finished, a, I guess, a four book series, The Chatherine Voyages, that are just awesome. I mean, they they take. So many of those old epic fantasy tropes, and really, really work with them in a in a in a new way. Um, so a lot lot to admire there. Um, let's see if I can think of any any people on the on the science fiction side that that uh, that that you wouldn't wouldn't necessarily know. Well, actually, you know, some of the books that I just read for the Philip K. Dick Award 
uh, although we haven't announced the the winners yet, so I, I'm not at liberty to say anything about sure, that. But sure. you know, the, the short list of that was just released, and really every book on that short list is um, is is an amazing book. I thought they were they were so strong. Uh, the book called uh, "Lost Everything" um, by Brian Brian Francis Slattery. A book called "The Not Yet" by Moira Crone. Uh, a really strange, odd book called Love Seed. I can't remember the author's name. Uh, a book called Harmony. Uh, just just some really interesting, innovative science fiction. So uh, anybody listening to this that's interested should just do a search for the you know Philip K. Dick Award this year, the 2012, and and uh, check out that short list. I, I guarantee you'll find uh, more than one interesting book on there. Great. Well, well, obviously, ebooks and the ability to easily self-publish ha- has had a huge impact on on book publishing since the launch of the Kindle in two thousand seven. Um, do you spend much time thinking about the impact of ebooks on publishing? No, <laughs> I don't. But I do, I do use I do use a Kindle a lot. <laughs> Have you have you thought I'm, about I'm, have you thought about self publishing any of your like older stories or doing a collection of short stories? Well, in fact, um, I am going to be uh, publishing uh, an, an ebook version, a revised ebook version of my of my new of my first novel, Waking Beauty. Great. When when should we look for that? Later this year? Or? Uh, yeah, it would probably be later this year. I, I'm. Uh, I, originally, I was just going to basically turn it into an ebook, but once I started looking at it, I mean, it's the first time I've I've actually read the book since I wrote it, and um, I I realized that uh, I had cut some things um, for publish, you know, when I published it, that um, that I really felt I could justify putting putting back in there if I, if I uh, expanded the book a little bit. Um, so that's what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, I'm working, like I said, I'm working on the sequel to the emperor of all things. That's my primary concern right now, but I'm trying to fit this project in at the same time. Sure. Well, well, I was curious about your writing process. Do you, do you have a specific workflow and, and do you feel like you're more of an organic writer or do you, do you do a lot of extensive outlining when you're, when you're working on a novel? Absolutely not. No, I am an organic writer. Um, I'm very rigid in terms of, um, you know, budgeting my time and, uh, and working every day. Uh, usually I, I try to get up pretty early in the morning and, and put in a few hours. Um, you know, I earn a living as a freelance writer and editor. So the rest of the day is, is pretty much taken up with, with my, uh, you know, projects that, that are actually paying the rent. Um, but I, I, you know, if I can get a few hours in the morning under my belt, then I feel like, you know, that's, that's my day right there. And everything else is, is just sort of, uh, you know, gravy after that. And, and, um, but, uh, I will occasionally, uh, sketch out a scene, um, maybe even a few scenes ahead of where I am currently in a book. And usually I kind of have, have an idea of where I'm going and, and where I'm going to end up. Uh, but I don't know exactly how I'm going to get there. And, and usually I find that um, if I go and I'm, I'm, I'm a fairly slow writer, I, I revise as I go. Uh, I find that, um, you know, if I pay attention to what's going on every day, 
the book will slowly kind of reveal itself to me and I'll, it will tell me where, where to go next. And, you know, if I make a mistake and try to impose my own will or desires on, on the book, sooner or later I'll get stuck. And that's always a signal to me that I, that I need to rethink or, or re-listen to what the book is trying to tell me. Interesting. So have you developed any kind of tips or tricks over the, um, you know, over the years of writing that, that if you do sit down for that two hours a day and, and it's just not working or, or, uh, you know, what, what, what do you do in that situation? Do you, do you stay with the novel or do you, you know, maybe pull up a short story and work on it? What, what's your, what's your, um, kind of process? Uh, I basically just beat my head against the wall um, <laughs> until until I break through. Gotcha. So, so what advice do you have for aspiring writers who may be listening, who who would like to, you know, have their you know short stories and novels published? Uh, well, um, you know, I think it's important to read a lot and read really widely, not just in the genre and not just fiction. Um, you know, read people that know what they're doing um, and and try to understand how they're doing what they're doing. I mean, one of the things that you learn as a writer is that the kind of naive pleasure that you once took in reading is just gone, never to return. Um, and part of, partly that's, you know, you can't help but feel a little disappointed in that. But on the other hand, um, you're, it makes for a, a very different and kind of more uh involved and self-critical way of way of reading where you're interrogating uh you know the text in front of you on a number of different levels and and you can really really learn a lot that way and you know i think workshops can be helpful um i i teach uh at at the uh, gotham writing workshop which is a online workshop um and I teach at uh, at a university as well. So uh, I, I and both of those teaching um, gigs are structured around the workshop experiences. I learned it at Clarion. Um, so I don't I do think that like workshops can sort of sh- be a shortcut in the writing process if you if you're a, a dedicated enough writer in the first place. Great. So where can people find you online? Well, I do have a, a web page, uh, but I don't really keep it up. I, I'm actually um, kind of uh, in preliminary discussions about um, getting somebody to, to revamp that for me. So I, it really would be useless for me to even give that out. Uh, okay. I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm on Facebook. Um, I used to have a blog called The Inferior Four Plus One, where I was blogging with uh, other writers, uh, Paul Filippo and... Uh, Elizabeth Hand and Lucia Shepard. Um, but uh, I found that that was a little bit too, I did it for about two or three years. And then I, I found that it was, um, uh, it wasn't as much fun anymore. It was starting to become like a duty or a burden or something. So I set it down. Right, right. Well, well, great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Paul Whitcover. His latest novel is The Emperor of All Things. Um, available now from Bantam in the UK. And as he said earlier, he's working on uh, the um, second book in that series. Paul, thanks for doing the interview.
Thanks so much, Jeff. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.